You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Joshua. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Joshua chapter 2, I'm really excited about this study in, in Joshua and, and just the things the Lord is going to speak to us and, and, and how I believe that it, it really has some great uh, implications and applications uh, for us uh, in, the, in the New Testament. I think the the parallel passage really is uh, the book of Ephesians, and you remember as we studied Ephesians a few months back, we we talked a lot about uh, the fact that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and and in the reality of it is is that the the blessings are there, but whether we enter into them or not is really the question, and and the same was true. Uh, for these children of Israel who were right up against the promised land. Now, they're about to enter in, and God said, look, all of this is yours. And the only question is, are you going to capitalize? Are you going to seize upon the opportunities and the blessings that I've given you? The same question that is really hanging over our lives, that will determine our success as believers. It isn't a question of, is this available to us? The question is, are we going to enter in? And so as we look at all of these battles and all of these conquests and all of the things the children of Israel are going to experience, these aren't like dead words. These aren't old uh, stories that maybe you watch on the History Channel that's like, well, that was really cool. These have implications and applications into our life. And, and God wants us, through our Joshua, Jesus, to enter into all that he has for us. And man, it's really sad when, when we fail to do that. And so uh, chapter 2 is, is a familiar story. It's one that, that I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard referred to. You may have uh, heard it taught. Uh, Rahab and, and the spies. And, and here they are. They're, they're right up against the promised land. And they're about to go in. And, and they know that the first city that they're going to have to defeat is the city of Jericho. And Jericho was a powerful city. And, you know, when we talk about them marching around Jericho and the walls fall down, and we're going to be getting into that in the next few weeks, you know, don't think about some, like, little wimpy, you know, cyclone fence or something. I mean, this was a major city, and this was a major wall. It was actually two separate walls, the inner wall being 12 feet thick. The, the outer wall being six feet thick. There were actually, as we learn in our text tonight, there were homes that were built on top of these walls. You know, this wasn't like a little neighborhood fence, you know. And so when they march around and, and they shout to these walls and they crumble down, this is a big deal. This is nothing short of the hand of God. And it, it is... is Really interesting, as they've done a lot of archaeological work in Jericho and a lot of excavating, and and they found the, these pieces of the wall, and it's very clear that this wall 
was violently destroyed in, in a very rapid uh, period of time. And so this city of Jericho, it was a powerful city. But God had already gone before them and he had prepared uh, the hearts of, of these people as we're, we're going to see. It says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, that's the guy's name. It doesn't mean that he just appeared out of nowhere. Sent out two, two men. So Joshua sends two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. Now, notice that this time they go secretly, covertly. Remember last time when they sent out the spies? It was like a big public thing. It was Everybody knew about it. Joshua learned something here. He, he was like, look, we're going to go spy out Jericho, but we're not letting everyone know because whatever they find there, we're going anyway. And so we just want to see what's up and what's going on, but we're not going to come back with negative reports and figure out whether we're going or not. We're going. And so he, he sent these men secretly. There was, there was wisdom in that decision. And he said, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came to the house of a harlot or a prostitute named Rahab and, and they lodged there. Now, I don't know about you, but do you think that that's kind of weird? It, have you ever thought about that? Why did they choose to go to a prostitute's house? I, that, that's where my mind, I think like, of all the places to go, but obviously this is what the Lord had laid on their heart and, and any kind of conjecture that there was something immoral going on, that's just totally reading into the text and it doesn't tell us that. Uh, history does seem to indicate, uh, that, that often these, you know, these harlots, these, these prostitutes would kind of have like inns and, and it would be, you know, a place to, to lodge and to dwell and, and obviously to do other things too. Um, but maybe it was, you know, it was a, it was an accessible place. Uh, I, I don't know why they chose, uh, to go to her house except that God had prepared this woman and, and, and God uses this woman in a radical way. Uh, as we're going to see tonight. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. And so, you know, th this city of Jericho, it must have been a lot like Prineville. I mean, like everybody knew what was going on. And the king hears about these two guys from Israel, and they show up, and he's not really excited about that because... They had heard what the Israelites wanted to do. And, and, and so now what he had heard is sort of becoming reality. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. 
And so Rahab, um, to protect these men, she lied. Now there's always the question was, was what she did okay? Was it okay for her to lie? And I would say that it's never right to lie. That the Bible's really clear about that. But obviously, this was her way of dealing with it. And you have to remember, this isn't a lady who was raised around the Bible. This is a prostitute. This isn't a lady whose, whose life has been dedicated to the Lord. God is doing a work in her right now. God is, is drawing her. God is, you know, slowly but surely doing a work. And in her mentality, where she was at, this was the best way to deal with this situation. Now, maybe had she, you know, been completely right with the Lord, maybe God would have given her another way to deal with this. I don't know. I, I'm not saying that it was right. I'm not saying that it was wrong necessarily. But I am saying that this isn't like a justifiable uh, thing for us to do, nor is this a proof text for us to lie, uh, you know, when it's convenient. Uh, th- this was where she was at. This was the decision she made. And, and something we have to understand is the Bible is 100% accurate. There's nothing in the Bible that's reported inaccurately or that is not true. But not everything in the Bible is a good thing for us to do. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of things in the Bible that are true. Yes, they happened. But it doesn't mean that we ought to follow in those footsteps. And Rahab handled it the way she knew best. And I don't know that it was the best. But I also don't know that it wasn't. And when we're in those situations... We deal with them, we handle them as the Lord would show us. But certainly this isn't like, you know, uh, proof text for us just to lie through our teeth and go, well, you know, Rahab did it and, and God commends her later. You know, it, it just, it's not there uh, for that reason. And so now, verse 8, before they, they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. So the spies are up on the roof. The The men that had come to, you know, probably kill them, are, are fleeing out to, to find them, although they're chasing the wind. And she said to the men, verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And it's, that's an interesting comment. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Remember again, you guys, this is a prostitute. She doesn't seek the Lord. She doesn't serve the Lord. But God is doing a work in her heart. And she says, I know. God has shown me that he is giving you this land. And this is like one of those opportunities that God gives us where you're talking to somebody and it's it's very apparent that God is drawing them. You know what I mean? They're not saved. They don't know the Lord. They're they're living in sin, they're, they're involved in things they shouldn't be, but they're beginning to understand who Jesus is, and they may even say things that are very close to confessions of faith. And, and this is where Rahab was. And she's, she's saying to them, look, I know that God is doing a work, and God is giving you this land. He has shown me that. And the terror... Of you has fallen on us. 
And all of the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted. Just basically means they're, they're afraid because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Now, these are things that happened a long time ago. You've got to remember, 40 years have passed since the Red Sea dried up, and they're still talking about it. And they're afraid of these people. And in fact, it says that their, their hearts had, had literally uh, melted. In verse 11, it says, As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage to anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so they had heard these stories. They had heard what God had done through them, how He had parted the Red Sea, how He had destroyed these Amorite kings, which you remember in our study in Numbers. These were powerful kings that the Israelites destroyed. And so when people heard that story, they were like, whoa, these guys are tough. You know, it's kind of like in school when, you know, the little guy just finally has enough of the bully and he just beats the snot out of him and all of a sudden everybody's scared of this little guy. You know, I remember that in school. You know, there's always this little guy who, you know, would get picked on and all of a sudden he'd have enough and and he would just go berserk on somebody. And, and all of a sudden people are like, don't mess with that kid. He's like nuts, you know. And... And that's kind of like what's going on with the, with the people of Jericho. They're like, you know, these Israelites, man, they are powerful. But here's the thing. They don't get the credit. God does. They're not impressed with their army or with their military skill or anything like that. They're impressed with God. It says that we understand the Lord your God, that he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so, despite all of the mistakes that the Israelites had made, and they had made a lot of them, despite their lack of faith, despite the fact that the first generation of people all died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, despite all of that, God is being glorified here. They saw Jesus. They, they saw the Lord in them, despite all of their mistakes. And, and you know, there, there's, a, there's a lesson in that for us in that people should be seeing the Lord in us. They, they shouldn't be seeing any skill or, or giftedness in us. They, they should be glorifying God. They, they should recognize what God is doing. And when they see our lives, there's kind of a healthy fear that there's kind of a uh, an understanding of who God is because of the work that He's done in us, and, and people automatically recognize Jesus. They see Jesus. They don't see anything else in us. And despite all of our mistakes, and despite all of the stupidity, and and we talk a lot about you know, the fact that the church really has misrepresented Jesus in, in our society, in our culture. And 
and man, I really want to do a better job of representing Jesus to our community and, and that people would see Jesus in us and, and that we, we wouldn't be just another religion and that we wouldn't be giving people the idea that it's, it's about what they can do for God, but that they would see the grace and the love of God and they would see us loving one another. And, but despite all of that, despite the fact that we have in a lot of ways as the church, capital C, we've misrepresented Jesus. Despite that, Jesus can still work. People can still see him and see his power and get saved and, and, and be radically transformed. Because, you guys, Jesus is the best thing about us. It's something that, that I say a lot, but I think we need to hear it, that Jesus is the best thing about us. As people, it's not our personalities, you know. It's not our sense of humor. It's not our intelligence. It's not our knowledge of the Bible. It's not our love for people. As a church, it's not our worship. It's not our Bible teaching. It's, it's not our phenomenal folding chairs, you know, it, it's, it's none of that. It's, it's Jesus. He is the best thing about us. And, and that was made very, very clear here in this text that God was the best thing about the Israelites. And when they heard about all these stories, immediately they glorified God, these, these people did. In verse 12, she says to them, Now therefore, in light of this, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token or basically a commitment, a a vow, a pledge of truth. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So she knows that Jericho is going to be judged. The Lord has shown her that. And she's asking for mercy. And the men answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. In other words, if you can continue to hide us and and you don't rat us out, then we'll make sure that, that we protect you. So, verse 15, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. And so this was a perfect place for for the Lord to hide them out, and they were able just to kind of slip over the wall. Now, it's interesting that when we get to the chapters that talk about God's judgment on Jericho, and the wall falls down. Obviously, this portion of the wall isn't destroyed. And God spares Rahab and her father's house and, and all, of her, uh, all of her family. And so it, it's kind of cool. Uh, her house is right on the wall, and the wall is going to collapse, and yet God will spare her. And so she lets them down, and she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. And so she gives them uh, wisdom. She gives them 
a plan of attack, how to hide from them. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. In other words, they're saying we will be free from this obligation unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. In other words, if you rat us out, if you, if you don't protect us, then we're free from this. And also, we're free from this obligation if you don't hang this scarlet cord out of your window. And, and you have to gather your whole family and get them in your house. And the day that the wall is going to fall down, and the day the judgment of God and the fire of God is going to come and burn this city, then... If you're not in your house, you won't be saved, which has absolute implications uh, in, in, in Jesus. That unless we're in Jesus, we're not saved, right? And as far back as Origen, uh, who was you know, an, an ancient uh, commentator and, and uh, scholar biblically from, from the second century, as far back as Origen... Uh, commentators have believed that the scarlet thread represents the blood of Christ. And, and that it was a, a picture, a foreshadowing, if you will, a type of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting that they kind of put the onus on Rahab. She had a part to play. Do you notice that? They didn't just say, okay, Rahab, thanks for your help. And you know, wherever you're at, Whatever you do, you're going to be spared. You know, if you're down at 7-Eleven playing Mrs. Pac-Man, you know, that's cool. No, she, she had to be in, in the house, and she had to have the scarlet thread hanging out the window, and she had to have all of her family there, which would have been a great risk to her. Can you imagine when she went to her parents and she said, hey, did you hear about those spies from Israel and the king, you know, wanted to know? Yeah, well, I lied to the king and I lied to his men and um, I hid the spies, but they're going to spare us and all we have to do is hang this red rope out of our window. They'd be like, what? Are you out of your mind? She said this to great risk to herself. They very easily could have went to the king and said, hey, my daughter is absolutely out to lunch you know, go ahead and, you know, arrest her or whatever. Uh, and so she, she had to take great risks to do this, just like when we come to Christ. People mock us. People say, are you out of your mind? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And, and there's responsibility for us as well, and, and, and that we have to put our faith in Jesus. We have to confess Him. And the other thing is, is that sometimes I think as Christians, we just, we just help people with, you know, with the right heart, but we put no responsibility on them. 
and, and we give people money or we take people into our homes and we give them food and, you know, people call the church all the time and, and, and they need help and they need money and, and more and more we're, we're kind of putting very small but some responsibility on them. Easy stuff. But like, okay, come to a service, sit through a service, then come talk to me afterward, and we will evaluate your needs, and we'll pray about it, and we'll see what happens. And you know what? That eliminates about 9 out of 10, and it might be more than that. It's like 9.5 out of 10 people, because they're not willing to come and do that. They just want us to write them a check. They want us to pull out... 20 bucks out of the petty cash and, and solve their, their need at that moment, at that instant. And when we don't do that, they, they'll just go find somebody that will. And I think as Christians, we need to put, you know, some responsibility upon people. And, you know, when, when somebody asks for money, that we don't just hand them money, that we say, well, you know, let me go buy you some some groceries or let me sit down with you and buy you a meal or or can I share with you some things and and we put some responsibility on them and and that's what they did to her look you need to be in your house and you need to hang this scarlet thread out the window and I think there's wisdom in that for us uh, that that we don't just uh, help people without putting some of the the responsibility and 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 putting the ball into their court as well, because you know, like the the adage, uh, you can you can feed a person for a day by catching them a fish, or you can teach them to fish and feed them for a lifetime. And sometimes we're we're really enabling people to just continue in the patterns uh, that they're in, and so there was some responsibility here for her, and 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 clearly this whole scenario points to Jesus and, and this scarlet cord. And, and you know, there, there's really a scarlet cord, a scarlet thread that runs throughout the whole Bible. It, it starts in Genesis 3.15 after the fall of man when there's a prophecy given that, that Jesus will, will come, uh, the, the seed will come, and the Messiah will come and he will... Um, his heel will be bruised, but he will crush the enemy's head. And clearly a picture of the cross, Jesus uh, was, was killed temporarily, but he defeated the enemy and he defeated sin and death permanently, eternally. And so right from the very beginning of the Bible, we see this scarlet thread being woven through the entire Old Testament and into the New Testament. And then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. And so 
they, they come back and they are stoked. They're excited about what God's going to do. And, and you know what, you guys? I really believe that, that God's got so much for us. Personally, absolutely, as a church, definitely, that, that 2008 is going to be an exciting year for us. And that, that God wants to reach this city, that God wants to reach people, that, that God is going to continue to raise up uh, you as, as ministers, as missionaries, that, that he's continuing to equip us, that, that God has great plans for us. And, and it's kind of like, um, I feel like, you know, are, are you ready to get on board? with what God wants to do. You, are, are you ready to, to say, you know what, I, I don't want to just be a, a, a bystander, a spectator. I, I don't want to look at church as somewhere I go, but who I am, that I am the church. And, and I don't want to any longer look at church as, as something that I go and do, and, and it's kind of like watching you know, professional athletes and, you know, we just kind of go and we watch and we, you know, buy our ticket, you know, through the tithe box and, and we, you know, um, eat some popcorn and, and sing, you know, take me out to the ball game, which is, you know, worship. And, and, and then we go home and, you know, it's just a, another event to be a part of, but that we're actually engaged in it and, and that we are the church and that this is just a place where we come and, and we get encouraged and we get built up and we get re-energized and and we get sent out to go into the sphere of influence that God has called us to and into that context that that you're called to be in and and that you're missionaries there and and that you're using your gifts and and you come back with a good report like these guys did of man God is doing a great work and God is going to to give this community into our hands and, and we're going to see it one for Jesus Christ. And, you know, not having a negative attitude and, and not having this, you know, this negativity really about the community that I think pervades uh, the community, but also not having a kind of a blase, just sort of, you know, yeah, we're just sort of existing and, and, not abounding, you know, that it's, it's just kind of the daily grind. And and yet Jesus said that he has come to give us abundant life and man, God's got so much for us. Are we ready to get on board? Are we ready to, to get strapped in and and say, Lord, wherever you want to take me, whatever you want to do, I'm excited. I'm engaged. I'm ready uh, for all that you would have. And and truly, as they say here, the Lord has delivered the land into our hands. God is, has made it available for us. He, he wants to enlarge our borders. God wants to, to do a great work. God wants to bring people into his kingdom. God wants to grow our church. God wants to, to grow our influence. God wants to grow you. God wants to do more and more in your life. And are we going to be excited and, and get involved in that? Or are we going to just continue to be a bystander and watch bus after train after opportunity go by and, and, and hear the, you know, the conductor say, man, 
the next stop, all that God has for you, and just say, you know what, I, I don't really, I'm not getting on, I'm not getting on this time. I'm just going to let it pass me by again. And you know, that there, there will be another opportunity. As long as you have air in your lungs, there's opportunities. But you keep letting them pass you by. We're not getting any younger, and we're not promised tomorrow. And, and the Bible makes it really clear that you know we will be judged as believers for what we did with those opportunities that were given to us, and and that we're going to stand before the bema seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sin that's taken care of, but to be judged for the gifts He gave us, and that which is gold. And silver and precious stones will endure, but that which is wood, hay, and stubble is going to burn up. And, and I don't want my whole life to burn up. I, I want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I, I want to be engaged with what God is doing. You guys, truly, the Lord has delivered the land into our hands. Do we believe that? Do, do, we, do we hear that? Does it resonate with us? Are we ready for what God has for us? Are we ready to see him do great works? Are we ready to be engaged in the battle that we're going to wage in 2008? Are we ready to see God do such an awesome work as we, as we just continue to serve him? Are we ready to step up and use our gifts? Are we ready to be filled with the Spirit so powerfully that we're just walking in, in the power of the Spirit, experiencing the, the fruits of the Spirit and the, the gifts of the Spirit, and that that would no longer be an anomaly? Do you know what I mean by that? That the power of the Spirit wouldn't be something we'd go, wow, it was incredible, this thing happened. That that wouldn't be like abnormal, but that would be normal. Do you know what I mean? Doesn't it, does it ever strike you weird that we get like super pumped up when, when God does something because it like rarely ever happens? It's like, wow, you know, this, this was just like uh, revolutionary. And yet when you read in the book of Acts, it was like what they daily existed in. Not that they weren't excited about it, but it was normal Christian experience. And now... Some of these things that ought to be normalcy have become an anomaly, have become the exception. And when they happen, it's like, oh my goodness, you know. That's what it feels like to experience God. That's what it's like. A friend of mine and I were talking today about, about prayer and, and about corporate prayer. And he, he said, you know, one of the reasons why uh, when you get people together to pray, that people are really long-winded in, in corporate prayer is because they don't ever pray at anywhere else. And then when they, when they get into prayer and they see how awesome it is and they're reminded of how awesome it is and they're reminded of, of the joy of it and what it does in your heart, it's like they want to just keep praying and praying and praying because they're not doing it personally. And it was like, you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. And you guys, God has so much for us, and I don't want to miss it. He has so much for us as a church. He has so much for you individually. Don't miss it. Don't miss it because you're going through a trial. 
Don't miss it because you're, you're going through a battle. You know what? That trial, that battle is the thing that's going to unlock the treasure and the thing that's going to unlock the, the victory and the, the work that God wants to do. In other words, they had to engage in battles in order to win and, and to enter into what God had for them. And so the battle was part of the experience. And so the battle that you're in right now, the trial, the difficulty that you're in, that's only the catalyst by which God is going to give you all that he has for you. And so it's not in your way, it's part of the process. And so don't kick against it, because when you kick against it, you cease to enter into what God has for you. You just stop. And, and, and God will patiently wait for you, but until you're ready to engage Jericho, until you're ready to do what God wants you to do in that situation, you won't ever have that portion of God's plan for you. And so don't kick against the battles and the difficulties and the struggles that you're going through. They are the key that's going to unlock what God has for you. They're part of his plan. And so don't get sidetracked. Don't let the, the world suck you in with, with all of its allurements. Don't, don't let success don't let worldliness, as, as the Bible talks about, uh, Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, that the, the weeds that grew up and in, in in, in choked out the work of God, and, and those weeds were like the, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. And you know what? Those weeds are, are pervasive. They are growing up in our hearts right now. And you guys, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, the desire for other things, don't let them choke out the work of God in your life. Don't let these things distract you and dissuade you from all that God has for you. There's so many voices out there. There's so many things competing and vying for our attention, for our time, for our talents, for our treasures. You guys, engage in eternal things. We all have a lot of stuff on our plates. We all have things that we have to accomplish. But don't lose sight of what God has for you. The Lord wants to do such amazing things. He, he's got a great plan. Amen? Yeah. Let's stand and pray together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.